well, even though it's March, it still feels like the dead of winter. And there's really not many things to do outside in North Dakota in the dead of winter, except a, a couple things. I know we have a lot of outdoorsmen in here, and, and a couple of those things are ice fishing and snowmobiling. And I want you to envision uh, a Saturday morning fishing adventure for me for just a second. Okay, just bear with me as I, as I play this Saturday morning out for you. You get up early, you get all your gear together, you go hook your snowmobile trailer with your snowmobile up to your truck, and your snowmobile is registered for this year. It has a little sticker on it that says 22 on it. You're a North Dakota resident and it's your first time uh, going to Minnesota to go fishing. You're gonna actually go fish on a, a lake by Detroit Lakes about 40 minutes east. So you make sure to go on to the Minnesota DNR website the night before and buy a fishing license. Your truck is, is, uh, is insured, the tabs are up to date, you get everything together and you head out to this lake. You drive the speed limit when you're going to the lake, or close to the speed limit at least. You get to the lake, take your snowmobile off the trailer, hook up the sled, drive out onto the lake, drill some holes, and you put down two tip-ups for yourself. Two tip-ups. You're fishing northern pike, and the limit is three pike per person. But yet, you can only have one pike over 30 inches. So you start fishing. You catch your first pike. It's 34 inches. Yes. Got my one over 30. Your next pike that you catch is 27 inches. Good. The third pike that you catch is 31 inches. So you let it go. Finally, you catch a fourth pike that's 26 inches, and now you have your three that you can keep. So you pack up and you head back to your home. Now that that typical Saturday morning adventure, fishing adventure, you know, you probably all have experienced that type of trip in some way. Uh, but did you notice that I emphasized something about that trip? I emphasized laws and regulations, rules and regulations. Now I wonder how many rules, how many laws would somebody actually obey on a, on a typical trip like that. I, I pointed out a handful, but I'm sure there's a lot more that you, that you would obey in a typical adventure like that. Indeed, there's probably a lot of laws that you obey every single day without even knowing it. Now, I want to ask a question. Why did you obey those laws? Why did you make sure your snowmobile was registered? Why did you only put down two tip-ups to fish. Why not three or four to increase your odds of catching fish? Well, because the law says you can only have two tip-ups, two rods per person. Why did you let go of that 31-inch northern? It was only an inch over the, over the slot limit. I mean, you've been fishing your whole life. You've never been checked by the DNR on this lake before, so why let this fish go? Why not just keep it? There's plenty of pike in this lake. And on and on and on we could go. You follow the law every single day without really even thinking about it. But why? Why do you follow the law? And, and not just why, generally speaking, but why biblically? Why do you follow the law of the land according to the Bible? If somebody was to ask you and, and say, hey, give me a biblical argument. What passage would you go to in Scripture? What would you say? 
Now, I think that the best passage to answer this question is Romans 13, 1 through 7. And that's the text that we're going to look at this morning. We're going we're gonna to hone in on Romans 13, 1 through 7 to answer this question, why do we obey our governing authorities? Why do we obey the law of the land? Now, I think Romans 13 is the best text to answer this, this question. This is the classic text. Now, where does Romans 13, 1 through 7 fall in the context of Romans, the book of Romans? And I know many of you know this, but Romans really is split up into two sections. The first 11 chapters are what we call the indicatives, which are the facts. And it's really the facts of the gospel. Paul is articulating to these Roman Christians the doctrine of the gospel, that we are all sinners under God's wrath, Jews and Gentiles alike but that we are justified and saved by faith in Christ alone, not by works. He also articulates this assurance of salvation that we can have because it's by faith in Christ alone. Then he talks about the, the future state of the nation of Israel and the doctrine of election. And then he transitions into the section, second section, which is the imperatives. So in light of this Doctrine, in light of the gospel that saved you, this is how you are to now live as a Christian who has been saved by this gospel, who has been saved through faith in Christ. And so our passage in Romans 13 is right amid that imperatival section of how we are to live in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so more specifically, Romans 13, 1-7 is addressing in light of the gospel, this is how you are to live as a citizen of a, of a nation. This is, how, this is how you are to live uh, in relationship to your governing authorities in light of the gospel. So hopefully that's clear. Let's actually read our text, and then we'll dive into it. We're just going to go verse by verse through it. So follow along in your Bibles with me, Romans 13, 1 through 7. Paul says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of your conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all who is what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now the main point of the text should be crystal clear. It's right in the first verse. Let every person be subject to their governing authorities. Main point, obey the government. That's true for the Romans 2,000 years ago. That's true for us today. Main idea, main point for us, obey the government. It's very clear. But then Paul and the rest of the passage he gives us a bunch of reasons for why we should obey the government, for why you should obey the government. 
And so our outline this morning is going to be pretty simple. It's just simply this. We are going to consider five reasons for why you must submit to the governing authorities. We're going to consider five reasons for why you must submit to the governing authorities. Yet, amid those five reasons, I'm also going to share the exception to the rule. Because certainly there must be an exception, right? So, that's where we're going. Five reasons, and then an exception. Reason number one is this. All authority is God's, and government is God's institution. First reason why you must submit to the government. All authority is God's, and government is God's institution. Look at verse 1 again. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. There it is, right there, crystal clear. So first I want you to think about or consider the fact that authority does indeed exist. We don't live in a world where there is no hierarchy of authority. There, that's kind of what people want us to think today, the young generation, my generation really, and younger really just kind of want to act like or, or think like nobody is in control of them. Nobody has any authority over them. They can do whatever they want. They can think whatever they want, be whatever they want. They are the determiners of their destiny. And there should be no consequences for their, for their decisions. But that's not the world we live in. We live in a world with authority, with hierarchy. The question is, who has it? Who has this authority? Do I have the authority? Do you have the authority? Do employers, do parents, do fathers, do mothers, do... Our kings and civil magistrates, does our president, who has the authority? And the text is explicit. God has all authority. I want you to consider this quote from a famous Dutch theologian, Abraham Kuyper. He lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s, he says this, we urgently request our readers to place all the requisite emphasis on this. The one true position that scripture points out to us is that as people, we by nature have authority over nothing. All authority belongs to God and God alone. All things belong to him and nothing to you. You have no authority over anything no matter what it might be, unless God grants you this authority. That's a pretty in-your-face statement, but it's true. That's exactly what this text is say, saying. God has all of it. You have none of it. And I want you to think about this just right off the bat. If you're an employer and you own a business and you have employees under you, the authority that you have over them really isn't yours. So think about that. Fathers, the authority that you have in your home. It's really not your authority. You have nothing. Unless God grants it to you. And that's important to realize. So any place in this world where we actually see true authority, an expression of true authority. So I would say that employ, uh, employers over their employees is a true expression of authority. A father's authority in the home is a true expression of authority. A king's authority over 
a nation is a true expression of, the, of authority, but any place where we see a true expression of authority, we have to realize that that authority isn't that person's intrinsically, but it's God's. It's still His, and He delegates it and grants it to this person to exercise. But it's still God's. God has all authority. And then he delegates it to people, to institutions. And so that's exactly what we see in point number one. Government is God's institution. All authority is God's, and government is God's institution. So, his authority is in it. He's delegated authority to government as his institution. Now, we see this type of delegation throughout the scriptures. The first place that we see God delegate authority to man is right in the beginning of our Bibles in Genesis 1. God creates a man and woman, and then he says this in Genesis 1, 26-28, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Did you catch that? He creates, he's going to create man, and he says, Let them have dominion. Over all the creation, God gives authority to man to subdue all of creation. Man has authority over the birds, over the animals, over the fish in the sea. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God delegates authority to mankind to exercise this authority over the created world. The next delegation of authority is still in this, this creation narrative in Genesis 1 through 3, and it's, uh, well, now we're after the fall, Genesis 3, and we see that God has already delegated authority over his wife, over the family in Genesis 2. So I want to draw your attention, though, to Genesis 3.16, where God is giving the consequences to Satan, to the wife, and to the man, the husband, for their sin. And he says to the wife, he says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And so in in creation, in Genesis 2, before sin entered the world, God had delegated authority to the husband to be the head over his wife, to be the head of the family. And now, because of sin, the wife is going to desire to usurp that authority and for her to be the lead instead. But God says, no, but man's still going to rule over you because this is how I created it. We see that expressed just a few verses later in Genesis 3.20. And the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. So as an exercise of that authority that God had delegated to Adam, he named Eve. And we see that with Adam naming the animals as well. It's an, it's an, an expressment of authority. The next delegation of authority really is parents over their children. Parents over their children. And we know this very well. We can think of Exodus 20, 12, one of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and your mother that you 
that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. And that's expressed then in Ephesians 6, 1 through 2. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So, kids are called to submit to their parents because their parents have authority over them. And it's not, again, their own authority, just like a, a husband's authority over his wife is not his own authority, but it's God's authority. I, I want you to just understand that, just drive that home in your mind, that it's a delegation. Remember, all authority is God's. So husbands over wives, parents over children. Another one is local church elders over the congregation and over the, the, the members of the church. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So, and then obviously in our text, God gives the king, so to speak, authority over the citizens in a nation. So those are, those are these institutions that God has made. He's, he's, he's made the institution of the family. He's made the institution of the state. He's made the institution of the church. And he appoints leaders in those institutions to exercise his authority. But these leaders... They will have to give an account, right? That's what we saw in Hebrews 13, 17. Those who will have to give an account. So, you know, the, the most explicit application for you really today, you fathers in here, you are the ones that have authority in your home. Really think about this. Really think about this. And some of you who may own businesses, really think about this. You will have to give an account one day for how you have stewarded God's authority. And will you have been found to have ruled, so to speak, well and faithfully? Fathers, will you have been found to have loved your wife like Christ loved the church? Would you have been found to have raised your children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord? Or will you have been found to have neglected that authority that God has given you for his glory and for the good of those who are under you? I really want you to think about that. Now, these different institutions where we see different delegations of authority, again, the family, the church, and the state, there's a separation of authority, though. And this is important to realize. I want to kind of emphasize this a little bit. We might call these things spheres, and these spheres are, are separate in a way. So that the head of the state is not the head of the family. The head of the family is not the head of the church. Now certainly there can be some overlapping. You can find yourself as a local church elder, but you also have a family. But you're not the head over every family. You're the head of your family. And so there's a separation. And maybe you've heard it phrases, it's the separation of church and state. You've heard that. We've all heard that. But that's not a secular idea. That's a biblical idea. And we see that in the Old Testament. You can think of the first king of Israel, Saul. God gives him authority. He's, he's the king of Israel. Authority to 
to um, bring punishment to wrongdoers, authority to fight battles and fight off the Philistines and, and the enemies of Israel. And he also has Samuel, the priest, who has authority to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings and atone for the sins of Israel. And if you remember the story, Samuel is late. He's going to offer some burnt offerings, but he's late. And Saul's like, well, Samuel's not here. I'll just take matters into my own hand. I will, I will steal this authority, and I will offer the burnt offerings. But that's wicked in the eyes of God, because he has delegated that authority to Samuel, the priest, not to Saul, the king. And when Samuel shows up, he's like, what have you done? Why did you do this? For this very reason, God is going to tear the kingdom from you. And that's why today, when we hear about the government, so to speak, getting into our, our family life, we, we get offended that we have a, an issue with that. I shouldn't have the government breathing down my neck telling me how to, how to parent my kids. When the government gets you know, into the home and starts messing with things, that seems like an issue, right? And we, we, we feel this. But it's because of the separation of, of, of these spheres, the separation of church and state, so to speak. The father has authority in his home and over his kids, not the government. So that's a, that's a biblical idea. And we just want you to know that. So what's the big takeaway from our first reason? Well, I just want you to think about this. America, we're American citizens. America is God's. Know that. Just like every other nation in the world is God's. And our president and the authority that our governing authorities have over us, our mayor, our governor, our representatives, our senators, this authority that they possess is not their own. It's delegated to them by God. And to kind of paint an opposite picture for you a little bit here, just to make this even more obvious, Vladimir Putin, his authority is not his own, it's God's. And Russia is God's. And I know that's just front and center right now because there's this war going on in Ukraine. But again, Vladimir Putin has no authority in himself. Valensky has no authority in himself. It's delegated to them by God to govern God's nations. So that brings us to our second reason for why you should submit to governing authorities, and it's this. To resist government is to resist God. To resist government is to resist God. Look at verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Did you notice that? Those who resist will incur judgment. If government is God's and the authority the government has is God's, then to resist is to resist God. And those who resist God will incur judgment. We know this. If we're found resisting God, we're against God. And if you're against God, you're under judgment. And that should terrify you. And we should understand this judgment that Paul is speaking of here as eternal judgment. You're under eternal judgment if you are found perpetually resisting the government because you, will be, you are perpetually resisting God. And this is a huge deal. You'll go to hell 
if you perpetually resist God. That's a huge deal. Now I want you to think of this resistance in light of the gospel as we're called to do because Paul wants us to think about these things that he's telling us in light of the gospel doctrine he just got done explaining in the first 11 chapters. Let's think of this in light of Christ. I want you to listen to the words of the Great Commission again, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Did you hear that? All authority on in, on heaven, or in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So this authority that the American government has, it, it's Christ's. It's Christ's. He has all authority. And if you are perpetually resisting the government, you are perpetually resisting Christ. And if, if you resist Christ in this lifetime, you are not saved. What does it mean to be saved? What, what, is, what is conversion? You know, we could say it's repenting and believing in Christ. Yes. And in that repentance and in that belief in Christ, really what's happening is you are, you are, brought in under complete or brought into complete submission total submission to the authority and lordship of Jesus Christ when you are saved Jesus is lord Jesus has all authority and you recognize this and you subject yourself in every way to his lordship that's conversion submitting to Christ in every way my life is not my own, it's Christ's. And so, when somebody is disobeying the government for no good reason, over and over again, really what they're doing is they're revealing the condition of their heart, the watching world. Maybe you in here are, you know, been cheating on your taxes for years, you've been Resisting the government in many ways, and maybe we don't even know that you're doing this, but you're doing this, and you know that you're doing it. And hear this right now. That means that you have been perpetually resisting Christ, and that means you're probably not saved. And this is what I would urge you to do right now. Repent. And believe in Christ for salvation. I urge you, do not resist Christ. Because if you resist Christ, you'll go to hell. Submit to him as he submitted himself perfectly to the will of the Father. Do you know this? Do you realize this? Christ, when he lived on earth, he perfectly submitted himself to the law of God, to law, the Mosaic law. He submitted himself to the will of the Father perfectly in every way because he knew and God knows that we can't do this. We're rebellious people and we're a, a resistant people. So Christ did this for us. And so we as Christians should be ones who live like Christ, live in submission to true authority. So again, if you have not yet repented and trusted in Christ, do this now. Don't resist any longer. Submit to the one supreme authority in this world.
Christ. That brings us to our third point. Third reason for why you must submit to your governing authorities is this. Government is God's minister of wrath to the wrongdoer. Government is God's minister of wrath to the wrongdoer. Let's read verses 3 and 5 again. You'll obviously see this very, very clearly. Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of your conscience. So we see this, this repetition here of this role that government plays. And their role is to be a servant of God's wrath. God created and instituted government for this very purpose. To punish evil doing temporally, not eternally. God does that. He punishes sin and evil eternally in hell, but he appoints government and institutes government and delegates them authority to punish evil doing temporally. And we see this in Genesis, back in Genesis again, Genesis 9, 5 through 6. This is right after God flooded the world to get rid of all these evil people on the world saved one family, Noah and his family. Then he makes this covenant with every living creature on the earth. And in this covenant, he says this in Genesis 9, 5 through 6, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Do you see that? Did you get that? God says that, hey, if somebody, you know, be fruitful, multiply Noah and your family, and as you spread across the earth, if a man kills another man and sheds his blood, you need to put that man to death. That's a commandment. You need to put that man to death. That's capital punishment. This is the institution of capital punishment, and it's implied that this is also the institution of government. Why? Because this has to be done orderly. Otherwise, it would just be vengeful chaos. It would just be a bunch of rage, people with rage just seeking vengeance for the, uh, the death of their loved one. And if everybody's doing this, then everybody's killing everybody. And there's no order, and it's, just, it's not going to work. So it's implied that this command to put to death the murderer is also the institution of government. And so government in its very inception is for the purpose of punishing evil. Government is God's deacon, servant of wrath. And so this is why you submit to the government, because God has given authority to the government to punish you if you disobey. Why do you obey? Because you'll be punished if you don't. We don't want to be punished. We don't want to be under God's wrath. Now, I want us to think about this a little bit more, though. Let's actually move back to Romans 12. This is really insightful here. Starting in verse 19. Listen to this. You're going to get some more clarity here. Beloved, 
Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's interesting. So you as an individual, God says, don't, don't seek vengeance for yourself. Don't repay. You feed your enemy, love your enemy, pray for your enemy. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. He has ownership of wrath, of vengeance, of justice. It's his. But then immediately we get to Romans 13, and then God says that government is God's servant of wrath to the wrongdoer. Isn't that interesting? Think about that for a second. Think of it this way. Government is, is the sword in God's hand, the rod in God's hand. And when government punishes evildoing, it's as though God himself, because it is God himself punishing evildoing. And when we leave punishment to government, we're leaving it to God. We're leaving it to God. That's so interesting. I want you to think of this in light of Batman. <laughs> I'm sure everybody in here knows Batman. Obviously, we know Batman. And I'm specifically talking about the... Batman movies with Christian Bale. I think those are the best Batman movies. But the first Batman, Batman Begins, really is the origin story of Batman. And if you remember the origin story, you know, Batman, his, his parents are, are killed by this, this uh, robber in the back alleys. And Batman wants nothing more than to seek vengeance for himself and to put this man to death. And so he, he tries to. He tries to kill this guy. When he's released from prison, some other person does it instead, but he just wants nothing more than to seek vengeance. But then he goes on this journey and meets this man named Ra's al Ghul. And Ra's al Ghul is the head of this organization called the League of Shadows. And they're really a bunch of vigilantes. And what they do is they go and they bring justice to nations, they bring justice to individuals, they bring justice to cities when the government is not doing it. They take matters into their own hands, even though they are not government, even though they have not been given this authority. And Batman finds himself in this tension. He wants to, he wants to see uh, the city of Gotham, he wants to see the government of Gotham actually take matters into their own hands as they have been delegated to do by God, so to speak, if, you know, let's just kind of think of as, as the Batman universe as, you know, being our universe, so to speak. He wants government to do the job, but they're not doing the job. And then he's being pulled this other way by Ra's al Ghul, who says, Gotham can't do it. We need to do it. We need to be the ones that take matters into our own, own hands. And that's it right there. So what Ra's al Ghul is doing is he's robbing from God. That's why he's the bad guy in the movie. He got it right. Ra's al Ghul does not have the authority to destroy Gotham and to bring Gotham to justice. Yes, there's plenty of injustice in Gotham City, but it's not Ra's al Ghul's place to administer this wrath, to administer this justice. It's God's, and it's the government's. It's God's rod. It's God's sword in his hand. 
Or think of it this way. Imagine uh, a master who owns this large estate with these big, beautiful grounds, these big, beautiful lawns and shrubs, and he goes on a long journey and he entrusts to his servant um, the task of keeping up the lawn, mowing the lawn, trimming the bushes, watering the plants, making sure everything looks nice and neat. And the servant does this and does this and does this, but then he eventually neglects his job and the lawn begins to get overgrown and look nasty and the shrubs aren't trimmed and plants aren't watered and they're beginning to die. And this guy who travels by this estate every single day starts to get annoyed by the condition of this lawn. And so he takes matters into his own hands and he jumps the fence to get into this property and he mows the lawn and trims the bushes and waters the plants. And he thinks he's doing a good thing. The problem is he was not delegated that authority to do that. The master gave his servant that job. Not this random person wandering by every day. And so what he ended, ended up doing is trespassing onto God's property. Does that make sense? He had no right being there. He had no right mowing the lawn. And so you have no right mowing the lawn. God has given that right to the government. Not Ra's al Ghul, not yourself. So, obey the government because God has delegated them authority to punish evil doing temporally. That brings us to our fourth point for why we should submit to the government, and it's this. Government is God's minister of approval to the good. We saw in those verses, 3 through 5, that government is God's deacon of wrath to the wrongdoer, but he's also a deacon, a servant, of good, of praise, of approval to those who do good. These are two sides to the same coin. Government has a dual purpose. Punish evil doing, praise good. And we know this very well, because this is, this is exactly what, what police officers do, don't they? They arrest lawbreakers, but they help lawkeepers. You ever notice that? Now, what is this approval, what is this praise that we get as citizens of a nation when we do good, when we obey the law? Well, I think it's certainly peace and protection. We have peace with the government. We don't have to fear and look behind our shoulders all the time that the feds are going to bust down our door and arrest us because we're cooking meth. And we're getting protection from them. Think of it this way. Let's kind of flesh out this this idea that you're cooking meth in your, in your home. <laughs> Let's just hypothetically say that the home that you have is legally owned. You bought it with money that you earned at a regular job. It's legal. The stuff in the home, the TV, is legally owned. You bought it with money that you owned, that you earned legally. But let's just say you're also cooking meth in the basement. And one day, uh, a robber breaks into your home and steals your TV. Now, you could call the cops. And the cops would quickly show up and they would apprehend this thief and you, and you would get your TV back. Great. But you don't call the cops. Why? Because you're cooking meth in the basement. And you know that if you call the cops, they're going to arrest you too. So you don't. 
And so you miss out on this role of government. You miss out on this praise. You miss out on this approval. You miss out on this protection. You miss out on this peace because you're a lawbreaker. So we want to be those who obey the law so we can get this protection, so that we can have this peace. It's a great thing. Now, excuse me, now, I, I'm sure that all this while, there are all these reasons for why we must submit to the government. You've been thinking, though. There's been a rock in your shoe. You're like, yes, I got it. I get it. Yep, I see it. But what about the exception, Sam? What about that exception you mentioned in the beginning? The exception to the rule? Because certainly there must be an exception. Right? And yes, and I think we're finally to the point where we can address the exception. When do we disobey the government? That's a very, very important question. And how do we even know, though, that there is an exception if it's not plainly stated in the text? What can we get from our text that would start to tell us that there might be an exception to the rule? Because I think there's something in our text that helps us think through this. And I think it's specifically the words good and bad. Government is the deacon of God's wrath to the bad. Government is a deacon of praise, God's praise to the good. Well, good and bad, evil, what, what, what do those mean? Are those just arbitrary terms? Who defines what is good and bad? How do we know what's good and bad? Well, we're Christians. We know that good and bad is not arbitrary. These aren't arbitrary words with arbitrary meanings. No, God is good. God defines good, and he defines bad. And bad and evil is what's opposed to God. That makes sense. We know this. And so God has defined good for us in the word of God, in the law of God. That is the standard of good. And the Bible also tells us what is bad as well. It tells us very explicitly and very clearly. We're not confused about this. We know this. We know what is good. We know what is bad because the word of God has revealed it to us. And it doesn't matter if you go on Mars. It doesn't matter if you are in Russia. Good and bad is still the same. What's good and bad in America is good and bad in Russia, in Ukraine in China, in North Korea, in Canada. It's not arbitrary. In the word of God, the law of God defines it. I want just to read a few verses from Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is all about the law of God. Verse 39 says, Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Your rules are good. Verse 68, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. 137, righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. 138, you have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. 144, your testimonies are righteous forever. Forever. I think that is now. Last one, 160, the sum of your word is truth. And Every one of your righteous rules endures forever. 
righteous rules, God's word, God's law revealed to us in our scriptures. They're righteous, they're just, they're good. This is the standard. So what does this all mean? Well, it means that God has called government to punish real evil, evil defined by the Bible. God has called government to praise good, real good as defined by the Bible. They don't have authority to define good and bad. God has already defined it. Does that make sense? So the exception clause would be this. Obey always unless to obey is to disobey God's word. Obey always unless to obey is to disobey God's word. If the government makes a law and in keeping that law, you have to disobey the word of God, then you do not obey the government law. They're not operating as they should. They are not called to define good and bad. They are called to simply punish bad and reward good. I hope that's crystal clear. And we see examples throughout Scripture to illustrate this. And we're going to go through a handful of them. We can go through many, many, many more. There's actually a lot of them. The first one that I want you to consider is in Exodus 1. You can probably remember in Exodus 1, the Hebrews are proliferating in the land. There's many of them, and, and, and Pharaoh is, is fearful of them and their numbers, and so he decides to do some population control. Starting in verse 15, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them who was named Shifra and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king commanded. Hear that? But let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. You see that? Pharaoh makes a law, commands that you these midwives kill baby boys. They disobey. And not only do they disobey, but then they lie to Pharaoh. It's just how they give birth before we even get there. And what does God do? He rewards them. He blesses them with families, proving that what they did was right in his eyes. God's law, God's word, always commands the protection of life. The protection of the image of God. And so when there's a law that would have us murder desecrate the image of God, we disobey because we have a higher law. Very clear. The next three examples I want to share with you are from the book of Daniel. I'm not going to read any verses, just describing to you. You probably know these stories well. The first one you can think of is with Daniel and the food of the king. Maybe you remember this in the beginning of Daniel. Daniel is, is being prepped to serve as, a, as an advisor to the king. And in this training process, he's given a ration of the king's food. But this food is, is unclean for Jews to eat. And so Daniel says, I can't eat this food. I can't defile myself with this food. And 
And one of the chief advisors of the king says, what do you mean? We're giving you good food to eat and you're not going to eat it? That's offensive. Daniel says, I have to obey my law. I have to obey my God. And I can't defile myself. I'll just eat vegetables. Now, I know that's not quite apples to apples, but I think there's a really important application to make. And it's this. If you're working, say as a public school teacher, I know we have some school teachers in here. You can work. You can work in the public school. Daniel advised King Nebuchadnezzar, this evil Babylonian king who brought the Jews into exile. But you have to be able to stand still for what you know is right. And so Daniel's like, I can't eat the king's food. And maybe you go, I can't teach critical race theory. I can't call a little boy a little girl. I can't teach the, the world's view of sexuality and gender. So I will teach in the public school, but I won't do these things. If they allow you to teach, then teach. But our next couple examples are a little bit more apples to apples. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know the story well. King Nebuchadnezzar makes this giant idol and then commands all the people to bow down and worship him. And these three go, we can't do this. We have a law, you know, like the first law in the Ten Commandments. You don't have any other gods except the true God. Don't worship any other gods. Don't commit idolatry. And so they disobey the king's rule. And immediately they're sentenced to death and they're thrown into the furnace. But God saves them. But he didn't have to save them. The next example is very similar. Now the king is King Darius. And one of the advisors of King Darius hates Daniel. Has a rivalry with him and decides to hatch this plan to get Daniel killed. So he tells the king, hey... I have a good idea for a law that you should make, and it's this. Uh, you should make it illegal for anybody to pray to any person or, or God or king except you, King Darius. And King Darius is like, yeah, that's a, that's a great idea. That's a great law. Let's, let's do that. So he codifies it, law. But Daniel is commanded in his law, in God's law, to pray. And when you're in exile, to face Jerusalem and pray to Jerusalem towards Jerusalem, to the promised land. And so he continues to do this. He opens up the doors like he's done every single day, and he prays three times a day for all to see, facing Jerusalem. He gets arrested, and he's sentenced to death via lion's den. But God rescues him. But God did not have to rescue him. Very clear examples of when you disobey. And every single one of these examples was clearly when to obey the king's law was to disobey God's law. It's the same for you today. It's the same for me today. Our final example is a classic text in the book of Acts. Very relevant to us today, for sure. Acts 5, 22 through 29. The disciples, the apostles are spreading the gospel in Jerusalem. They get arrested by the religious leaders. And when they have brought them, they said they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. 
But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. You see that? The authorities in Jerusalem says, hey, we commanded you that you cannot share the gospel. You, we, you cannot preach Christ. Peter goes, sorry, we must obey God rather than man. You should be able to say that today too. If, if, if evangelism is ever made illegal in this country, you must say, like Peter, sorry, government, I must obey God rather than man. And this is the case in China and the Middle East and plenty of countries around the world. It's illegal to share the gospel and you must be able to say, sorry, I must obey God. I must preach Christ. No, it's an example for us in America. I think we're very fortunate still, even though our, our country, you know, we all know this is kind of going down the tubes a little bit. It, it's still not as far gone as many countries in the world. And, and there really isn't an immediate law that we can think of that would, would cause us to disobey God's law. But our neighbors to the north, they have such a law. Actually, May law on January 8th of this year. I'm talking about Canada, and I'm talking about Bill C4. Maybe you've heard of this bill before, and if you haven't, let me just briefly summarize it for you. Really, what this bill has to do with is it has to do with sexual identity or gender identity, so transgenderism or homosexuality or things like that. And what it does is it criminalizes what's called conversion therapy. And the bill defines conversion therapy as this. Conversion therapy, this is a direct quotation from the bill, means a practice, treatment, or service designed to A, change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual. B, change a person's gender identity to cisgender. Cisgender just means the gender that you were born with. So if I'm born a male, to be cisgender is to still be a male. And that's um, the opposite of transgender. C, change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth. D, repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior. E, repress a person's non-cisgender gender identity. F, repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to that person at birth. Do you understand that? That's wild. Basically what this bill is doing, let me just kind of make it simple, is that is it makes preaching repentance to somebody committing the sins, you know, of transgenderism, cross-dressing, homosexuality. It's making it illegal to preach repentance to them, to preach the gospel to them, because the gospel requires that you call somebody to leave their old life of sin behind them and to trust in Christ. That's the gospel. Christ has died for you. You must throw off your old self. You must die to your old self, and you must follow Christ in obedience. And not only that, but Christian sanctification is, is repressing and reducing your old desires and your old sin. You put it to death. And it's making that illegal. 
So for me to even preach this right now, let's say I'm in Canada and I say homosexuality is a sin. If you want to follow Christ, if you want to turn to life, you have to repent of that sin. Just like any other sin, though. That would be a criminal act in Canada right now. So, yes, we in America are still very fortunate, but just to the north. And we're, we're up here in North Dakota, so it's not, it's not too far away. Hour and a half drive and we're there. What would you do if you were a Canadian citizen right now? I would hope that you would be pretty quick to go, this is a law that I must disobey. If I am given an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody who identifies as a homosexual, then I'm going to break this law and I'm going to preach the cross to them, I'm going to preach Christ to them, and I'm going to preach that they must repent of their sin so that they can have eternal life. You have to be resolved to do this. And use this time that you have right now in America where we're not immediately pressed with unjust laws, so to speak. Use this time to consider these unjust laws in other countries and think about how would I respond in that situation. If, that, if I was a citizen in that country, what, what would I do? And use, that time, use this time right now as, as training, as preparation, because you're, you're not guaranteed, there's no guarantee that the American government won't pass a law that will be just plainly unjust. Prepare yourself. Prepare yourself. Now I know you're probably thinking, well, Sam, I want to know about vaccine mandates. I want to know about mask mandates. I want to know about meeting limits and things like that. So just let me quickly and briefly just explain a way to think about those things. Because we don't have a command in Scripture that says, hey, you must always keep your face unmasked. We don't have a command in Scripture that says, hey, never put anything in your body, any drug in your body. Like, no. We take, our, we take drugs, ibuprofen, vaccines, we do this. It's not illegal. So what about this stuff? Well, one, the meeting limits. We know that we do have a command in Scripture that we must gather as the saints, we must gather as the church corporately, in person, to worship God as one unified voice. We must do this. We have a command to do this in Hebrews. And so if the government says you can't meet, yes, we disobey. And that's what John MacArthur did. Maybe you remember this a little over a year ago when he had this battle with Los Angeles County. They put all those restrictions on his meetings, on his church services, and he's like, sorry, we're disobeying. And then they took out a lawsuit, and it turned out that Los Angeles County was overstepping their authority. They were actually doing something and making restrictions that were, were unlawful to make. And so MacArthur was found to be right. And so here's a principle. You don't have to obey fake laws. Does that make sense? You don't have to obey fake laws. If, if, if some governing authority, some mayor, whatever, governor, president, whatever it is, says, hey, you got to do this, but you know, well, wait a minute, that's just plainly against the U.S. Constitution. That's just unlawful. You don't have to obey it. The government has to obey their own laws. 
And we see this with Biden's vaccine mandate to businesses that have over 100 employees. You know, what did he say? Hey, if you have employees that aren't vaccinated, they have to mask up every day and they have to submit to weekly COVID tests. And if they don't comply, you fire them. And this went to the Supreme Court and they said, hey, sorry, Biden, this is unlawful. You can't do this. This is unconstitutional. So again, we don't obey fake laws. And I think you have in these areas that the Bible doesn't express, expressly talk about or explicitly talk about you, you have some freedom in your conscience to decide what to do. But when the government does command something that is expressly against God's law, we disobey automatically. And for those things that it really doesn't talk about, well, you have freedom to decide what you want to do for yourself. Finally, that brings us to our last reason for why you must obey the government. So, yes, we spent all this time talking about the exception to the rule, but let's go back to one more reason for why you must obey, and it's this, for the sake of your conscience. Paul ends with that statement. Look at the end of verse 5. For the sake of conscience. For the sake of conscience. So, what is the conscience? Well, it's been defined as your moral compass. Uh, the conscience really is a, a notification to yourself that you have sinned. You've done something wrong, and it notifies you of this really through feelings. You feel shame. You feel embarrassment. You feel gross. Your conscience is, is not clean. It's not clear. And it should lead you to repentance. But it's a horrible feeling. It's a horrible way to live. If you live constantly with a conscience that's filthy, it's, it's no way to live. It's horrible. And so Paul says, hey, obey the government for the sake of your conscience. You don't want to live like that. Nobody wants to live like that. It's not fun. It's not helpful. So obey for the sake of your conscience so you don't have to deal with these horrible feelings of shame and guilt and embarrassment and grossness. And that's why he says, for this reason you pay taxes. And he's not saying, and it's hard to see this in the English, but in the Greek it's a lot clearer. He's not saying to the Romans, hey, pay your taxes is like a command as though they aren't. He's actually saying, for this reason, this is why you are paying your taxes. He's basically saying, hey, Roman Christians, realize this about yourself. You, you are currently paying your taxes and you're really showing to yourself and to me that you, that you do obey the government and that you do have a clean conscience. So this should be true for you today. You should be paying your taxes, you should seek a clean conscience. And it's tax season, so think about this. Don't lie on them, pay your taxes. And finally he concludes, verse 7. He succinctly says, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And this is still in reference to the government. So that's the end of our five reasons, and that's the end of our text. So just as a refresher, just as a reminder, what are these five reasons? Why should we obey the government? Well, first, all authority is God's, and government is God's institution. Two, 
To resist government is to resist God. And you will be under judgment if you do resist God. Three, government is God's minister of wrath to the wrongdoer. Four, government is God's minister of approval to the good. And five, for the sake of your conscience. And I just want to remind you one more time that all authority is indeed Christ's. And the Christian is one who submits fully and entirely to the authority of Christ, to his lordship over your life. Government is his. The family is his. Your business is his. Everything is his. He submitted to the Father. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross in your place. He was buried. He was resurrected three days later. And he calls you today to repent and to trust in him for salvation. If you have not done this, I urge you, do it today. And for those of us who are already in subjection to Christ, submitting our lives to Christ because we have been saved, well, let's display this. Let's live in light of the gospel that has saved us, as Paul is calling us to do. Let's obey the government when it's good to do it. If the government gives an unjust law, let's disobey, showing to the world that we have a higher law. Let's live as people who are under authority. Let's pray.